Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Stephanie, how is Paris treating you? Bonsoir. <laughs> it's the evening now. It's treating me quite well. It's good to be back here in the City of Lights. And thank you for being so accommodating with these uh, last minute schedule changes I'm experiencing. How are things with you, Steve? Things are good. Things are busy here. We're waiting grant application announcements. And while we do that, I had a chance to meet with the team that uh, met him. Louisa Bohr have put together to review the Guinea military. She's talking to a bunch of experts. I was in a Zoom room with three really smart people and me. So that, that way my ideas could be thoroughly vetted by the other three people in the room. Plus, Madame Marbor asked good questions. I can't really say what the others said. It was all chatting about the rules, but people can go to my blog and, and see what I had to say about the experience. I do think she's quite serious about what's going on here. And she was asking really good questions. She's done a lot of work. And we're talking to her towards the end, I think, rather than the beginning of her review process. I have no idea when her results will come out, but she's definitely been very attentive to ongoing events. And I think she understands how difficult tasks she and the CAF and D&D face. So it was a, a really interesting conversation. And I understand that she'll be talking to you pretty soon too. Yes, exactly. Uh, as soon as I get back to Canada, I've got a meeting scheduled. So I'm really curious about where the conversation will go. And then of course, very curious about the outcome of this whole process. So far, it seems like there's been swift acceptance of her interim recommendations. So uh, mm. I anticipate that will be the case as well with her full set of recommendations whenever those come out. Well, we'll see about that because I think it's one thing to, to say, okay, we'll accept the fish report and do things quickly on that. It's another thing to, to make major recommendations about all the things that are involved with D&D and the CAF, about promotions, recruitment, retention, policies, military justice, who's going to report to who, what kind of accountability is there, who's doing the oversight. So I think I think the next batch of recommendations will be much more controversial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's one thing also to accept on principle. And then of course, the implementation piece is, is the challenge. And that was the case with the the Shaw report, I mean, mm -hmm. there was no major pushback on the recommendations themselves, but it's in the way that they were implemented that we we saw that the change didn't go far enough. And you're right, with uh, Arbour, the mandate and the scope of the review is much broader. So probably you know, a lot harder to put these recommendations together, not only by themselves, but for them to make sense in terms of a coherent set of recommendations because it'll be a long list. It'll be a long list and it'll be the glue that ties them together. I have no idea. But there's been a lot of stuff in the news last week or two that we want to talk about that is not related to the CAF, or at least not directly. So let's talk about the environment first. There was COP26, the environmental meeting in Scotland. Take a look at what came out of that. Are you optimistic about the future of climate change? Are you pessimistic? Are you wondering why we spent so much, you know, so many planes ex ex that put out so much carbon to have a meeting that might not have accomplished all as much as people hope? <laughs> No, yeah, that's a good point. It's funny because I was reading that the statement, and this is not our field, we do security and defense. So I'm reading this the same way I, I approach NATO communiques and trying to pick up on, on the wording and the subtleties behind the language. But I think the consensus was that it was a pretty disappointing statement and, and overall conference. But at the same time, where I'm feeling more optimistic is in the level of criticism mm -hmm. uh, that is being launched at world leaders on topic of climate change and the heightened level of 
public accountability. So I see that as a good sign. There was a lot of attention paid to it, lots of coverage, lots of scrutiny, and then lots of criticism when it comes to the to the outcome. So that piece is reassuring. Of course, it's also good to see the U.S back in the fold because Trump had withdrawn the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. So it's good to see Biden bringing the U.S. back to those conversations. I think that's very important. And even though that was predictable, of course, very early on in the presidency, I think it's still a significant milestone. But as for the conference itself, I think it's important to just quickly provide some some background because we are dealing with a, a security and defense audience primarily, but the COP conferences are annual gatherings in support of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And even though these types of gatherings happen annually, the, the breakthroughs are few and far between. We tend to refer to Kyoto or Paris. And so even though there's an annual meeting, you know, when they're significant agreements, those are the ones we tend to remember. And uh, Glasgow doesn't seem to be one of these. Um, what makes COP difficult is that it's very focused on consensus building and then states make nationally determined contributions to meet or exceed but mostly underperform on the budget <laughs> that we make and so when we compare these types of summits to other summits that we may be be tracking in the security and defense world another significant aspect of this is just the, the length of it it was almost two week summit with you know close to 200 states involved so even though not all world leaders attended and you know Russia and China were conspicuous by their absence it is a fairly huge event and some of the major topics that were discussed were deforestation cutting down green greenhouse gas emissions, moving toward banning coal, ending fossil fuel use, and states making net zero pledges, especially in the oil and gas sector. So it is an interesting show to watch for the sidelines, but definitely more unfamiliar territory than uh, the types of security and defense conversations that we're used to, whether it's the, the NATO summits or, or elsewhere. When you were looking at the coverage of COP26, were there particular issues that you were tracking more closely or you know certain things that you were expecting that didn't happen or anything that caught your eye in particular? I'm not even sure if you've been blogging about this, have you? I have not been blogging about it. I find myself to be an amateur when it comes to environmental challenges and climate change. I still use global warming to show you how old I am on this stuff. It has inspired some of the CDSN we're doing. So some in the future, we're going to try to incorporate more climate change stuff into, into our grant proposals and our research because as we saw in the past 24 hours in British Columbia, climate change like pandemics, are much greater security threat to Canadians than shenanigans going on on the border between Belarus and, and Latvia or Lithuania or Poland, that BC has swung from fires to floods in ways that are just utterly catastrophic, that Vancouver right now I don't think is connected by land right now to the rest of Canada because the major road carries much stuff has been washed away. So when it comes to this, this stuff, I think we're going to be paying more and more attention to it, but it's further outside of our expertise of exactly what does it take to slow climate change, not to reverse it, because I think that that's not in the cards at any point right now, but to get to some sort of net zero where we slow the warming, that we limit the warming to 1.8 or 2.4 degrees Celsius. And so I was just paying attention to that. I've, to be frank, I've always been a, a climate change skeptic, not that it's not happening, but skeptical about the ability for countries to cooperate on it because the domestic political costs of this kind of change are hard. In this country, it's very hard because our emissions, you know, maybe national, but the stuff that is literally fueling it comes from, you know, a select part of Canada. It's from, you know, basically Alberta and maybe Saskatchewan. And as a result, most of the changes will be felt by provinces that feel that they're being unfairly targeted. But the reality is that's where the oil is. And we know what burning oil does to, the, to climate change. So I was going into the skeptical. So therefore, I wasn't really disappointed about this meeting. I just wasn't expecting much from it. So did we accomplish more or less? Well, that really depends on the policies that get enacted. You mentioned Biden and the United States. The real challenge for them is the midterm elections aren't that far away. And it's very, looking very much likely that the Republicans will win. And even if they weren't to win, uh, it, they've proven over the past year that it's very hard for Biden to make real significant changes. And it turns out that he constantly needs the support of a senator from a state that produces coal. That Joe Manchin has been a principal obstacle in any real 
efforts to move away from coal in the United States. And the sad thing is, is that coal only employs like 60 or 80,000 people in the entire United States. It's not a big industry. However, it is a big part of Joe Manchin's portfolio, literally a big part of his investments come from coal. And so it's just hard to get around the realities of domestic politics in the United States, in Canada, with Alberta, and other countries to make major changes to the way we do things. I do think we're making progress in some areas. And, you know, Electric cars are becoming more than just fashionable. They're becoming almost affordable. I've been looking into it myself for my next car, which is not anytime soon, but sometime down the road, I'll be getting the next car. It's increasingly likely it's either going to be a hybrid or it's going to be electric. There's no way around it. And I think we're making progress there, but I'm just really skeptical that it'll be in time. That'll be too, too little too late. Yeah, I think you, you've you outlined the, the conundrum quite well. And you've also outlined the fact that, you know, this lies outside of our expertise, but there. There are certain themes that resonate more broadly in terms of how we think about international politics, like what you described as, you know, one of the classic collective action problems mm-hmm. too on, on a more global scale, you know, short-term dependence on fossil fuels, but long-term environmental degradation that threatens everyone. And it's also clear that some countries are more vulnerable than others. And there's that global north and global south divide again, that manifests itself across a, a bunch of issue areas and climate change is no different. So both economically speaking, and in terms of feeling the effects of climate change, you know, countries like India are, you know, in a particularly tough spot. And they keep on saying things like it's unfair, countries that should do most are those that are historically responsible for the most greenhouse gas emissions. And those are all the rich countries. But you know, when you look at India, India is particularly affected by both the economic dependence on stuff like, you know, coal use, and then also really suffering from the effects like air pollution is a huge problem in India. So the the argument that rich countries should pay for lesser developed states so that they can afford to make emission cuts is one that was heard a lot during the, the conference. And of course, in the varnished language of COP, it's the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. <laughs> and, and another example of this is to pay Africa to keep their forests, which act like huge carbon sinks. So it's interesting that even though the policy terrain is removed from our own, there are still you know, broader debates and broader uh, international politics conundrums that, that are replayed in that context as well. All right, well, we'll move on because there's gonna be a lot more to be said as once we get more of the commitments down the road, that'll be the product of things like summitry. So we are now facing a new summit between the three amigos, leader of uh, Mexico, the leader of the United States, and leader of Canada getting together. And so this comes at a time where US-Canadian relations are a little sore. What do you expect to come out of this? Do you think that Trudeau and Biden will become bros and, and all the barriers between the United States and Canada will drop away? Or this is be one of those tougher meetings where the two of them sort of present each other's cards and, and there's not much cooperation to be had? What do, what do you expect to come out of this, of that, the new hangout? Yeah, I expect it to be cordial, but I'm not sure I expect Trudeau to gain a lot of ground on on the grievances that he'll be raising. Again, here the parallel is, is made. Oh, new president. It bodes well for the trilateral summit because Trump didn't even want those summits. He wasn't interested. But when we do the comparison, things are not all that different. It's a new president, but old ways when it comes to dealing with Canada, it's not all that different from from Trump. By American is still, you know, front and center and will continue to have an economic impact on, on Canada with the auto sector particularly hardly hit. And you know, from the Canadian perspective, there are lots of bones of contention from Keystone to the Line 5 pipeline, Softwood, Dairy. I mean, we'd like the bilateral defense relationship, I think, to, to be discussed in this context. But I think trade will, will dominate the agenda because one of the things that you also have to do when you're looking at a you know bilateral exchanges and, and trilateral meetings, and I think there's going to be a little bit of both during the summit, is that Canada has to be strategic about which issues it wants to push during this meeting, which issues also to raise within the context of the trilateral talks and which issues to hold off for more privileged bilateral meetings and and platforms. Mm And which issues to raise right now versus which issues to shelf <laughs> later. So you cannot just like show up with a long list of grievances. And that's the thing. The, the list of, of grievances is, is quite long. And the risk of other policy issues that could be discussed is also long. Like 
border policy. You know, mm -hmm. that was always a hot topic before, but has taken on renewed importance with COVID traveling guidelines and testing policies for, for travelers like Canada's PCR test requirement, you know, are being hotly debated in the news. You know, is that going to, to feature in, in the talks? I'm not sure. COP26 just ended. You know, they could be talking about a common approach to tackle climate change. You know, that would make sense. But uh, what's the most pressing priority and what are the most painful irritants, I suppose, is the question to ask. So I was going through the, the list and, and reading through the commentary, and there's so many issues that are central to the bilateral relationship, but this will not be a 13-day summit <laughs> <laughs> like on COP26. So you, you do need to be uh, choosy for these very precious in-person meetings with Joe Biden and of course with AMLO. So we're going to be airing this episode, well, tomorrow on Wednesday and this meeting, this in-person meeting is set for Thursday. So I, I suppose if anything really interesting or shocking comes out of it, we'll be discussing that at our next podcast, or maybe you'll be blogging about it. But let me ask about your, your expectations. You've mentioned the difficult political li landscape for Biden and, mm -hmm. and that's over climate change and it applies here too, doesn't it? Yeah, the trade's really difficult as well because it used to be be the Democrats had more of a problem in, in supporting free trade because they had unions and working class and just a variety of constituencies. And that became also about environmental concerns and the rest. So there was more resistance amongst the Democrats about free trade than the Republicans. And then Trump came to power and Trump sort of shifted that. So the Republicans have become more skeptical of free trade. And the Democrats, because everything Trump touches, they, they sort of poor, it's caused there to be more support amongst Democrats, but still there's less of a consensus these days in the United States for free trade. And so that's going to color the whole conversation between the United States and Canada over, over buy America. Does buy America mean buy North America or does it mean buy just made in the United States? And I think it's really interesting. I was skeptical when people in Canada were critical that Biden would come into power and wouldn't be pro-Canadian, but it turns out they were kind of right. I think he's more tied to some of these old things about, you know, the impact of trade on American jobs. And so he's not as much of a free trader as I was expecting. So I'm not really expecting a whole lot of progress on that. I think it would be smart for him to do so. I think he could use some wins diplomatically at this moment in time. But I haven't really seen his administration be that smart on many issues. I think they've done some good things. I've done, I think they've also been less than adept or agile on a variety of other issues. So I just don't see them doing anything to make the Canadians happy because they want to make the Canadians happy. The question is, how does this play in Ohio, where there's a major Senate race going on? How does it play in other key American battlegrounds. And I just don't think trade with Canada is up there now. Maybe, you know, one thing role that Biden can play is to encourage the Canadians to get rid of the PCR test, because that's a major deterrent to the cross-border trade that, you know, a lot of businesses on the northern part of the United States do very well selling to Canadians, whether it's Burlington, Vermont, or Syracuse, New York, or you know, Seattle, I guess, even. And right now, people are deterred from doing that, not because the border is closed, because the border is open now. But if you want to do that, you have to get a PCR test either in Canada or the United States. And those tests in, the, in Canada are a couple hundred dollars. I just took one to get to Copenhagen a couple weeks ago. And, you know, if you're traveling with a family of four, that's suddenly $800 to go for a day trip of shopping in the United States. So that might be a trade impediment and a tourism impediment that Biden may push back on. So maybe Trudeau might not be listening to other people, but he might. It might respond to that. I sure hope if he does, he does so before next week because I'm going to the United States for Thanksgiving. And I will, I've already made my appointment to get tested the day before American Thanksgiving, right after I get there, essentially, so that way I can return to Canada. I mean, it's a major hassle and it will cost me and my wife, a, you know, a couple hundred dollars. But we're doing it anyway because it's a way, you know, how often do I get to see my family these days? But I do think that that bit of pandemic response, one can even call it pandemic theater, may be changing at some point. And maybe Biden pushes on that because I do think that the Democrats and Republicans in the northern states of America and the United States are going to say, hey, this is bad for our trade. This bit of health stuff has become a non-tariff barrier, but it's a barrier to trade nonetheless. Well, no matter what happens at this summit, the U.S. remains a better neighbor than Belarus. 
I was wondering how you were going to segue, but yes, indeed. And the issue thing about what's going on between Belarus and everybody else is that it starts with the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, being upset because he's faced sanctions from the West because he's a, you know, it's one of the most authoritarian regimes in Europe. He's in his sixth term of office. The latest election was seen as a sham. And this is one thing that is not the first time that an authoritarian leader has used migration border flows to pressure democracies. So when we get to Steve's R&R segment, I'm going to recommend Kelly Greenhill's book, Weapons of Mass Migration. And what's so smart, genius about that book is it compares a variety of times where autocrats have used democratic values against democracy, that democracies proclaim to be good about treating immigration immigrants well, good about treating people well, but yet they often don't want migrants. They don't want immigration. And so what these countries will do, and it goes from Cuba to uh, Libya to others, will threaten to open the doors for migration that will create domestic political pressures within democracies that will reveal the hypocrisy and put their leadership in difficult positions. And this is what's happening now, where the European Union would like for those people who are trying to cross from Belarus into the European Union, whether that's Poland or Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia, the countries in Europe don't want them. They don't want to have to deal with another flow of refugees. These are refugees from places like Afghanistan and from other parts of the world that, tr- that have been brought essentially to Belarus by through the promise of getting a swift trip into the European Union. None of these people actually want to stay in Belarus, but they've been I think, lured there by the the Belarusian government as a way to then exert pressure on the EU. And so that's what's going on now. And and that's why we're seeing the, the pictures of people at the border trying to escape Belarus into Poland, facing harsh measures by the Polish border security service, being pushed back by the other countries. And this is why it's happening now. Yeah, I think the only one clear loser in this whole standoff is that the thousands of people stranded at the border in, in terrible conditions. It's freezing, there's no food, no medicine. And uh, as you've mentioned, these migrants have faced abuse by security forces. So, you know, of course, Russia is not far behind. You mentioned that these migrants have been encouraged to travel to Poland to reach Europe. It's just another chapter in the hybrid warfare playbook. And, you know, Russia has demonstrated its solidarity with some military displays uh, over the weekend in Belarus. But, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, even if the intent is to not only unveil the hypocrisy of, of the EU, the tactic is also to sow division and disagreement about how migration flows to Europe should be managed. And so far, at least, the, the EU and NATO seem to be standing by, by Poland and, and seem to be containing these disagreements uh, fairly well. So I'm not sure if this is exactly backfiring when it comes to what Lukashenko was was hoping for. But so far, it's it seems to have created more unity in terms of Poland and EU narratives. There hasn't been a lot of unity in terms of Poland and EU narratives of late. That's true. That This is actually doing the polls a favor, given that they've had their own problems because they've been moving toward towards authoritarian tendencies themselves, the version of their courts and other other dynamics going on. So it gives them a common cause with the rest of the Europeans. But yeah, the Russians are involved. They, they've been prom- they've been overflying uh, Belarus airspace to provide air support and show that they care. So not likely this is going to escalate to anything that involves a real use of, of force between countries. But it gives the Russians another chance to engage in saber rattling, which we don't really need and we could do without. But then it plays into Putin's hands because it allows him to distract his population from his mismanagement of his pandemic. Turns out all this disinformation the Russians put out about the pandemic have discouraged people in Russia from getting shots as well. So I think Putin is looking for any opportunity to distract Russians from what's going on within Russia. And this is another opportunity. But I do think that Lukashenko is trying to use this as leverage. And we'll see. It has put the European countries in an awkward spot of trying to say, you can't send these migrants here where they're migrant, they're refugees from Afghanistan, they're refugees from other harmful places. Shouldn't they be resettled in, in better places than the, the border of Belarus? But that's apparently a debate the, the Europeans are, are willing to play around with or to take a particular side of, no, it's it's a job of Belarus to take care of these people, not us. And as a result, these people become the playthings of, of, of the policies of these countries. And that's just awful. Well, you mentioned Afghanistan, and, and this is actually the f- topic of the feature interview today. So this feature interview is with retired Colonel Eleanor Taylor, and she spoke to me about her advocacy efforts when it comes to the Afghan evacuation efforts, because Canada is falling 
far short of fulfilling its pledges to bring Afghans to Canada. And it's a good time to air the interview so that the issue does not disappear into the, the background for this new cabinet. And so just very happy to share this interview with Alan Tiller. I'm glad we got to connect, Steve, even though I'm uh, in Europe for a few more days. But thanks again for speaking to me, even though I'm six hours ahead of you. Well, you're always ahead of me, Steph. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again at the year ahead. We forgot to plug the year ahead event. It is December 3rd in Ottawa. It's an in-person event. And we will have all the appropriate COVID protocols from people having to be double vaxxed and fully vaccinated to having food served at tables rather than a buffet to people wearing masks except for when they're eating. So it's going to be as COVID safe as possible. We have some tickets left over. We have you moderating a panel on organizational change. We have a, a couple of panels on gray zone conflicts. People are starting to call the Belarus situation a gray zone hybrid kind of attack upon the West. Kelly Greenhill's Hill's book is all about asymmetric strategies where weaker players can use different kinds of strategies to put stronger players in bad positions. So I think it applies here too. And we have a panel on domestic emergency operations, which is more relevant thanks to what's going on in British Columbia these days. And we have a fireside chat, which is going to be run by the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security Canada, who have brought together some people to talk about Islamophobia and national security. So it's going to be a terrific event. It'll be available online, but we really hope some people can come in person because a lot of these events really lead to interesting conversations in between the panels as well as during the panels themselves. And it'll be great to see you there. I can't wait, Steve. Enjoy the rest of your conference. Make sure you get tested because I know that you're going to need to test when you fly back to Canada. Mm, I'm going to be getting one of those expensive PCR tests. (laughs) See you soon. Take care. Lieutenant Colonel retired Eleanor Taylor completed a 25-year career as a regular force infantry officer. While in uniform, she deployed to Kandahar, Afghanistan, during which she led operations with soldiers from the Canadian, U.S., and Afghan armies, in addition to working with Special Operations Forces Command, developing interagency partnerships. In 2013, she was named by the Women's Executive Network as one of Canada's top 100 women. In 2019, she was invested into the Order of Military Merit, which recognizes exceptional service. In October, Colonel Taylor took part in the speaker series at the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University to talk about the Canadian veteran effort in support of the Afghan evacuation. This is what we're exploring further in today's feature interview. Colonel Taylor, Eleanor, it's such a pleasure to welcome you on Battle Rhythm, and thank you very much for visiting Queen's virtually last month. Oh, it was such a pleasure. I was, I really enjoyed uh, speaking to that group. Yeah, and it's been a particularly busy few months for you, given your role and involvement with the Afghan evacuation after Kabul fell into Taliban hands. How did your involvement start and what role have Canadian veterans played behind the scenes in those evacuation efforts? My involvement started in mid-July really when I started to see other veterans talking about the issue on the news. So it started with Afghan-Canadian interpreters, a person by the name of David Morrow I saw on the news, and then I I saw uh, somebody who I had deployed with, a person by the name of Corey Shelson. He had been on Task Force 110 with me, and I started to see social media posts from other veterans, and I, and I realized at that moment that those interpreters who I had worked with when I was in Afghanistan hadn't made it out. And before that, I really didn't know much about what had happened. Uh, I had, of course, knew about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, but I wasn't aware of the situation that faced those people who had supported Canada or who Canada had expressed an interest in. And so the first thing I started to do was simply make contact with those people I still knew in Afghanistan who had either reached out directly to me or who I reached out to to see what their situation was. And I worked directly with the head interpreter who I had worked with in Afghanistan uh, who had immigrated to Canada in 2011. And he uh, was working not only to get his family out, but to get all of the people that we had collectively worked with. And so we started, like many other veterans, just putting together our own list and trying to support 
the people we knew in Afghanistan through the very difficult application process under a very compressed timeline. And then again, as I said, I, I was seeing these, these pieces of information emerging on social media about veterans who were trying to make a difference. And I reached out to one of them who had been somewhat responsible for coordinating the letter that was drafted and signed by the three former uh, task force commanders. So General Major General Milner, Major General Fraser, and Major General Thompson, all now retired, uh, but who had written an open letter to the, you know, the government of Canada calling them to action on this issue. And so then I suddenly found myself in this group of people who was meeting twice daily to try to advocate specifically for this, this population of people and also facilitate communication between the applicants that we were working with as these groups coalesced around each other and the government of Canada to include the Canadian Armed Forces so that we could help support them meet their objectives in the evacuation. And that's how it started. It certainly has evolved since then, but that's how it started. Thank you. And and those early awareness efforts were certainly key. There was a lot of work also done in the background. Can you give us a sense of the scope and the scale of what these efforts produced now looking back several months into it? Yes. So some of the things that veterans brought to the table that are not necessarily unique, but certainly skills that that veterans and folks who have a a relationship with the military have. So we were able to bring a bit of an organizational structure to the coalition of advocates. And so we would meet twice daily, and then we, we continued to add organizations into our structure, you know, very much like grouping and regrouping that happens in the military when we're on operations. And we were able to bring in like-minded organizations who were interested not only in advocacy, but also directly in evacuation. And one of the things that we realized early in the process during the days of the air bridge was that all of these organizations had different lists, all collecting different types of information all formatted differently and as we were trying to advocate you know to the government of Canada and say here are the people we're representing we realized that sort of updating and and managing those lists was going to be one of the biggest challenges that we would face and so one of the members of our team reached out to IBM Canada who provided us a team of volunteers who created for us an end-to-end solution that would allow applicants to directly update their information into a shared database. And so we could allow all of these organizations to use the same link that would allow all of the information to be coalesced in a single spot. And that was really important because it gave us a sense of the totality of the applicant population and how they were doing in terms of their progress in the application process and also in their evacuation. So that was one of the things that I think we've really collectively brought to the table that helps us understand the scope and scale of the problem. Certainly other things that we were able to do is, you know, the credibility that the retired general officers brought to the group, the relationships that they had that allowed them to, to, you know, to speak credibly on behalf of the entire group, I think was invaluable. I would also say that Veterans Transition Network, who became the fundraising vehicle for all of our groups really did a yeoman service by finding a way by which they could fundraise for this effort. And Canadians really pitched up and have donated $3.6 million overall, 2.4 of which went uh, directly into Veteran Transition Network, uh, who have been supporting uh, the organization that I'm now working within, Em and Laura, in the provision of safe housing, and also in the evacuation, both by land and by air, of the applicant population. So it has really evolved from, you know, just a bunch of people who who wanted to do the right thing and recognize that time was short, to an organization that has very deep links into government on these issues specifically, and, and I believe is incrementally achieving an effect that will benefit the applicant population substantially. That's impressive. And early on uh, in what you said, you mentioned the the depth of the logistics involved in an effort like this. And I know you have 
combat experience in Afghanistan. You were deployed in Kandahar alongside soldiers from Canada, the U.S., and Afghanistan. How has this experience shaped your ongoing advocacy work and how you approach this whole logistics piece of helping Afghans? Yes. So I did indeed deploy in, in 2010 and developed, as all as we all did, friendships with people who supported our operations, who really soldiered with us, who assumed risks for us, with us, and in many cases, you know, saved the lives of my fellow soldiers, and in uh, one case, saved my life, where I had one of my interpreters point out an IED uh, that was, you know, very close to me and and prevented me from initiating it. And so personally and specifically, I have a great deal of respect and gratitude for those people and what they did for us collectively. I also, of course, interacted a lot with the population in Afghanistan while I was there. And it was very clear to me that people were making choices about whether or not to support the coalition. And those people who made choices to support the coalition sometimes, even in those times, did so at great cost and risk to themselves. So an example I recall vividly was there was a village elder in one of the, the villages. And when he hosted my tack, my patrol for tea, and we talked about possible projects that could be done to support his village. The next day, the Taliban came in and, and beat this man who was in his 70s. And it was made very clear to, to everyone that that happened because he had collaborated with us. And, and so, you know, people knew the risks that they were taking by engaging with us, and they did so in an effort to make their country better, and also because they believed that we would be successful in our efforts. And so the imperative to support them is both a moral imperative and also a real politic imperative, because of course, we leverage locals and interpreters and staff in every theater of operations that we participate in. And if we fail to take care of them, you know, we can be confident that the trust that people have in us on future operations will evaporate. And so we need to, for first and foremost, to, to make sure that we continue to be aligned with the values that we understand are Canadian, but also to be practical and to understand the impact of failing to do that on future operations. You know, and, and so my understanding of that evolved during my mission in Afghanistan, and it, it makes it very clear to me that this is the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. And one might argue it's also embedded into how Canada has designed its foreign policy, even though there's no foreign policy statement to speak of. We've talked a lot about the feminist foreign policy, which entails an analysis of who's most vulnerable in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and then tailoring our efforts to address those vulnerabilities. In terms of your past experience, but also in terms of the efforts you have deployed in the past few months through the various organizations that you've mentioned before, like the Veterans Transition Network, do you have a good understanding of who is most vulnerable right now? I understand, you know, the categories of people who have been identified by the government of Canada in its effort to bring them home, but I'm sure you have a much more granular understanding of who's most highly at risk right now. Yes, and the thing that is true is that across all of those people that Canada has expressed an interest in, there are elements of those populations who are at significant risk. And so, I mean, women leaders, women in general are a population at risk, and women leaders specifically are at significant risk. A demographic that is at significant risk is the Hazara community. They are, uh, they are at risk of persecution, have been for a long time in Afghanistan, and continue to be actively persecuted right now. Within those who, who supported the Canadian Armed Forces, there's a segment of that population that are being actively hunted. And just in the past two weeks, we've received copies of nine threat letters that were provided to former employees of the Canadian Armed Forces or who supported the Canadian Armed Forces, stating that they need to report 
and be identified with their families. And if they don't, they can be certain that their families will bear the consequences. And, and then on, we hear daily harrowing stories about journalists and comedians and people who, you know, represented Canada's interests who are at significant risk. So it is it's difficult for me to say who is most vulnerable because there are people in every element of, of those categories that Canada has expressed an interest in who are at risk of death and execution if they're to be found. And, you know, and the risk doesn't get more profound than that. So I think that's the best way for me to answer that question. Thank you. And so now moving forward, I understand that some sizable commitments have been made by the government of Canada to welcome more Afghans to the country. But the evolving situation in Afghanistan is not an easy one to operate in at the moment remotely as you are providing this support. So can you help us better understand the challenges involved in getting refugees and asylum seekers out of Afghanistan and safely to Canada now that that air bridge that you mentioned has long closed? Yes. So there are two pieces of the evacuation efforts that are essential for success. The first is people need to have an open application pathway, and those applications need to be approved. And there are significant challenges in that domain. So while Canada has expressed an interest in 40,000 Afghans that represent the range of of the applicant population from those who had a significant and enduring relationship with Canada to those who are vulnerable and at risk. So the journalists, the human rights advocates, the women leaders, the LGBTQ, the ethnic and religious minorities. Although Canada has expressed that interest and that number, I can tell you that those who meet the criteria for a significant and enduring relationship with Canada, of those people we are representing, 80 percent of them are still waiting for their applications to be approved. And 10% of them have had their applications approved and they may be in a position for us to move them. If you want to look at the other category, those who are vulnerable, those who don't have a specific in relationship with Canada, but whom Canada has expressed an interest in, the pathway for them, the application pathway for them to come to Canada is exceedingly unclear. And of those people we represent, a very small fraction, less than 5%, have had their applications even acknowledged. So that is the first challenge, is finding, you know, clarifying for them and really for Canadians what the pathway is, because it is not clear. It is not clear that the applicants who remain in Afghanistan are being prioritized by the Canadian government at all, and specifically those who are in the vulnerable category. For those that fall into the, the SIMS category, those who have a significant and enduring relationship with Canada, they have had more success than anybody else, but still the vast majority of them are waiting for their applications to be acknowledged or to be approved. So 60% of those people who have submitted applications, who we think are good candidates, 60% of those individuals have not had their applications even acknowledged. And then there's one final group that we're interested in, and that is a group of people that clearly have a significant and enduring relationship with Canada, the, the family members of formerly resettled interpreters. So that interpreter that I worked with initially to help everybody else fill in their applications, he resettled in Toronto in 2011, and his parents and his brothers and his sister and his 10-year-old son remains in Afghanistan, and their application has not even been acknowledged. And he is like all of the other formerly resettled interpreters who are waiting, and that needs to be resolved too. So that's the application process. And then we get into the category of evacuation. It's challenging. I, I absolutely grant you that, but it's certainly not impossible. And if the government of Canada were to bring all of the resources that it has to bear in a synchronized way, it would be more 
than achievable to get the number that the Canadian government has advertised out of Afghanistan. And there are different ways that this can be done. We had some modest success moving people by ground through borders into Pakistan. And, you know, we supported them through the creation of manifests, the communication to our government partners to make sure that manifest was was good and approved. And then, you know, the physical movement of them to the border crossings. Recently, there have been some changes to some of the border crossings, which have has impeded our success there. That is the documentation requirement in Pakistan. Uh, and those sorts of issues can only be resolved diplomatically. Other options exist to move individuals who are approved to third country locations that have Canadian High Commission embassies in them where biometrics could be completed. This seems to be one of the challenges that the, the Canadian government faces. They don't want to allow anybody who presents a risk to Canada in, which is fair and reasonable, but certainly there are lots of ways to move people to third country locations. And we, in fact, have been fundraising for charter flights and will continue to do that and have had uh, some people moved out on charter flights where they then, you know, either in places like Islamabad or Qatar can have biometrics done and then move onward to Canada. And the Kabul airport is open and charters are available for very reasonable prices. And so when when folks want to paint that this is impossible, it is not impossible. It is imminently possible for us to make substantial headway on this if we applied the right horsepower to it. And, and I don't want to point the finger at specific government departments, because I want to say that specifically IRCC and GAC individually within their own lanes have been working exceedingly hard to solve this problem. But what seems to be absent is a synchronizing body that would make sure that the plan is executed in a unified way. And, and that's the piece that, that is absent here. Everybody is working in stovepipe, but nobody is working together. And uh, and that's what needs to happen to make this work. Thank you for, for laying out that plan for how the whole process can be improved and sped up potentially. And I also think that there's a lot that regular Canadians can do as well. You mentioned the charter flights and that of course, would require lots of fundraising. I think the fundraising efforts this far have been quite successful, but the efforts you've just described here would entail a need for more and more resources. So what can regular Canadians do to help in this moment, whether it's through fundraising or whether it's lending their expertise or their voice to the effort? So absolutely all three of those things. So we are actively fundraising for charter flights, and we also now retain a small capacity for safe housing for those people who are ready to move. And we use it now as a staging area as opposed to long-term accommodations because there's less certainty. Well, there is no certainty around the timeline uh, with which we can get these people out. So number one, if people have dollars to spare or want to offer a, you know, a gift to a family member in the form of a donation for this very worthy cause, it's a donation to Veterans Transition Network, who, again, is a funding vehicle for us to do this work in Afghanistan. So that's the first thing. I think holding the government of Canada to account for prioritizing the applicant population, the Afghans who remain in Afghanistan, because those people are at significant risk. And they're the ones that we promised we would get out. And we haven't. So we need to do that. So lending your voice of advocacy to let your MPs know, to, you know, to let your network know that we need to focus on this population, the population in Afghanistan, and not declare success for something that is clearly not yet a success, but it could, it could still be. And then if people have a desire to volunteer, or to lend, as you say, their expertise to the table, they can go online and uh, visit mandlaura.org or vtn.org and offer what it was that they, and offer that expertise. So what we're building out next as a volunteer base are those who can support, who can uh, build an arm of application support. So uh, we're going to be taking those applications that haven't been acknowledged and going through them with a fine-tooth comb and seeking to improve them or communicate with IRCC on behalf of those applicants. 
you know, to, to turn more of those applications into approved applications. So if folks are interested in doing that, that's our next major uh, recruiting drive. Thank you. And, and we'll have these organizations listed in our show notes so that people can refer to them and go visit their website. Eleanor, thank you so much for raising awareness and for the work that you do in helping Afghans safely relocate to Canada. Good luck with your work, and I hope more feel inspired to help. Thanks, Stephanie. It's been a real pleasure. Today's R&R segment, I have the aforementioned Kelly Greenhill Weapons of Mass Migration book. It is a terrific book. It's really engaging, and it made me think differently about international relations. So it's one of those books that make you go, huh, because it really opens up the imagination about thinking about how do weaker countries impose costs on stronger countries so that way they get done stuff that they want to do. So I, I really find it very persuasive both in the larger scheme of things about how do worker countries do that, and also in particular, how migration crises are manipulated and even sometimes created by authoritarian regimes to put democracies in difficult positions. So it'll help, it'll help to understand the current crisis in Belarus, but not just that crisis. It'll help you to understand a variety of past crises, ones that Greenhill talks about and others that she could have anticipated with her, her argument. It's, a, again, a terrific book. To watch, I recommend a TV show and a movie. The TV show is Love Life. It's on Netflix. It's in the second season. The first season starred Anna Kendrick going through a series of romantic potential partners. And in the second season, it features William Jackson Harper, who played Chidi on The Good Place. And it starts off with him being married. And then, well, there's more episodes. And it's, it's, again, a really well-written, engaging show. You want to yell at him for the choices he makes, just like we yelled at Darby, Andrew Kendrick's character from the previous season. It's also sweet. It's romantic. It's, it's just a nice distraction from the, the, everything else. Speaking of distractions, there's also Red Notice, which stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Canada's best ambassador, Ryan Reynolds, as well as Gail Godot. And Ryan Reynolds is either the first or second best art thief in the world in the in show. And he is going after three old, 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 beautiful eggs supposedly made for Cleopatra. So lots of adventures ensue. He develops a partnership with The Rock, which goes awry. Gail Godot is a, 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 another art thief that they're rivals with. And they're all chasing the same stuff. And it... It's a pretty dumb movie. I mean, in terms of, of stuff that you don't want to think about too hard, but it's delightful. The chemistry between the three is great. It's a it's silly. Uh, Ron Reynolds is the top of, of his form, and I'm a fan of the Rock. Uh, I thought he does silly stuff really well, silly action, and so it's a it's an entertaining way to spend an evening without much of the way of consequences. Uh, and we all can use that from time to time. So those are my recommendations for this week. Be well and uh, start getting ready for the onslaught of Winterfest movies and uh, music. Take care.